You're listening to audio from the Town Center campus of CA Church, located in downtown Coquitlam. We hope this message helps you grow in your personal relationship with Jesus. Good morning. You guys can uh, grab your Bibles and turn to Genesis 18. For those of you who don't know, my name is Brad. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, Excited to be with you this morning. If you were here last week, um, you may recall that I kind of zipped in, did a quick message, and then zipped out. uh, Broke a record for myself, preached four sermons last Sunday. It was quite a party. Um, Well, yeah, you didn't hear the fourth one. Um, But uh, I was, uh, yeah, it was a a great week. Um, I really felt like I zipped in and zipped out. Really quick kind of message. Um, I don't really like it when I can't hang out with, uh, with my campus, my family. Um, but if you thought, oh man, that was so fast. He was in and out of here in 20 minutes. Uh, I'm glad you enjoyed that because this morning will probably be a little different. Uh, I've got a lot to get through this morning. Um, I was talking to the, the team beforehand. I said, so I'm probably going to be talking a little faster than usual. And they said, absolutely not. <laughs> you, you were already too fast. So... Um, So I'm just telling you right now, buckle in. We're going to be walking through two chapters this morning, um, word for word. And we're going to look at the Hebrew of every... No, we won't do that. Um, We will be glancing over it. But I I would invite you, if you have your your app or your Bible app or a physical Bible, to leave it open as we walk through um, this morning. And I will say right now, these are two chapters that people don't like to preach on. There's a lot of stuff. Uh, And we thought we'd just throw them all into one weekend uh, to make it more enjoyable for the pastor. Uh, If you're visiting, welcome. (laughs) I'm going to invite you to stand out of respect for God's word. And we are going to begin by reading Genesis chapter 18, verses 1 to 8, and then Genesis 19, 1 to 8. Chapter 18, The Lord appeared to Abraham near the great trees of Mamre, while he was sitting at the entrance to his tent in the heat of the day. Abraham looked up and saw three men standing nearby. When he saw them, He hurried from the entrance of his tent to meet them and bowed low to the ground. He said, If I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, do not pass your servant by. Let a little water be brought, and then you may all wash your feet and rest under this tree. Let me get you something to eat so you can be refreshed and then go on your way, now that you have come to your servant. Very well, they answered. Do as you say. So Abraham hurried into the tent to Sarah. Quick, he said, get three sayas of the finest flour and knead it and bake some bread. Then he ran to the herd and selected a choice tender calf and gave it to a servant who hurried to prepare it. He then brought some curds and milk and the calf that had been prepared and set these before them. While they ate, he stood near them under a tree. Chapter 19, verse 1. The two angels arrived at Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting at the gateway of the city. When he saw them, he got up to meet them and bowed down with his face to the ground. My lords, he said, please turn aside to your servant's house. You can wash your feet and spend the night, and then go on your way early in the morning. No, they answered, we will spend the night in the square. But he insisted so strongly that they did go with him and entered his house. He prepared a meal for them, baking bread without yeast, and they ate. Before they had gone to bed, all the men from every part of the city of Sodom, both young and old, surrounded the house. They called to Lot, 
Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us so that we can have sex with them. Lot went outside to meet them and shut the door behind him and said, No, my friends, do not, don't do this wicked thing. Look, I have two daughters who have never slept with a man. Let me bring them out to you and you can do what you like with them. But don't do, I'm glad I'm hearing sounds from you already. But don't do anything to these men, for they have come under the protection of my roof. Do we have your attention? God, please guide us this morning. Teach us your heart. And I pray we would make space for you to speak to us this morning. You invite us into such a beautiful story. And what we've seen through this series, what we see through Scripture, what we often see in our own lives, is that when we try to live outside the boundaries of faith, we try to create our, our own story, it gets ugly very fast. And so speak to us this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. You can take a seat. For those of you who don't know, we've been walking through a series on Abraham and the promises that were given to him. Uh, by God, that God would bless him, that he would give him many descendants, that he would, uh, that his descendants would bless the nations of the world. Uh, Out of his descendants would come someone who would, who would bless the entire world. And in these two texts that, that we just saw today, they, they revolve around these, these divine characters. Um, at times they seem like when he speaks to one of them, he's speaking to all of them. And sometimes it sounds like he's speaking to God himself. And then there's some angels involved as well. There's times where he, yeah, he speaks to all and then, then, then two go off on their own, as we'll see. But we see God showing up and we see two drastically different responses and outcome, outcomes. To Abraham, the arrival of these divine messengers was a joy. It was a blessing. In Lot, we see fear, we see danger, we see a hurried embarrassment. And as we will see, we see judgment as well. And this is the the kind of thought I want us to have this morning. The main idea I would pose to you this morning is this. I think we have it up there. Our reaction to the presence of God in our lives when God shows up mirrors the foundation upon which we have constructed our spiritual dwelling. Let, me, let, let, that, let that sink in. <laughs> Let's read it one more time. Our reaction to the presence of God in our lives mirrors the foundation upon which we have constructed our spiritual dwelling. Wherever we have set up our lives spiritually, that will that'll mirror the way that we respond when God tries to show up and do something in our lives. Some of you, you love it when people come over. You are baking all morning and you cannot wait until someone just does the pop in. Just shows up at your door. You're excited. Well, someone in our... Did someone just pull into our driveway? I am pumped. You have the cake ready, and you're like these people. You come to the door, and you are just pumped. Then there's some of you who you hear a noise in the driveway, and you're like, kids, get the lights. And you slide down inside. <laughs> and I love the look on that, that dad's face. Now, I'm not speaking from experience, but I know there are some who think, my house is not ready, I don't have anything for guests, and you ha- your, your anxiety jumps up a level when someone shows up in your driveway. And you've never been happier that it's just Amazon dropping something off. And some of you, you know, you maybe have reasons. It might be a messy house. Some of you maybe have anxiety when it comes uh, for people showing up. But we see here in this story, we see there is a major difference in how these two men, really these two families, respond to the unexpected arrival of God into their lives. So I'm going to attempt 
to, to walk us through chapters 18 and 19, and I will draw some thoughts out as we go. But a quick overview of what happens in these two chapters is this. God visits each of these men, Abraham and Lot, and their families, uh, and, and sometimes as, as all three of them, God and two angels, and then to Sodom, just these two angels. The first stop is Abraham and Sarah, at which God tells Sarah and Abraham that within a year they are going to have the promised son that, he, that he's been promising, that we've heard about over the last couple of weeks. They are, now just keep in mind, they are now 100 years old, and God's about to bless them with a child. I don't know if you'd be excited about that at 100, or thinking like, oh, I was hoping to be an empty nester by the time I'm 100. The next stop after that is these two angels of God going to visit Lot and his family in Sodom, a city known for being vile, not just godless, but without any drop of humanity, disgusting, self-seeking, depraved in every possible way. And God's angels visit Sodom. They warn Lot and his family that eventually Sodom is going to be destroyed. Lot and his wife barely escape. They're basically pushed out because they still are so interested in staying in the city. As they're leaving, uh, Lot's wife turns. She turns into a pillar of salt. And it's evident throughout that Lot, his wife, his son-in-laws, his daughters have all been influenced by the godless, vile city of Sodom. And throughout these two chapters, we see an, an obvious comparison. There's this uh, contrast between Abraham, who is labeled righteous, and his nephew, Lot. And a few weeks ago, you will remember, we looked at Abraham's kind of open-handedness that he had. This kind of, I know I'm within God's promised life. I know I'm living this life of faith, so I can live with kind of open hands. Things are going to come, things are going to go, but I can live this, this life of open-handed faith with God. But Lot didn't want that. Lot, in an attempt to gain wealth, chose a life in a land that was lush, but it was also known for deep, deep sin. Sodom and Gomorrah were famous in the ancient world for their sin, known for living in long disobedience in the same direction and away from God. It says in, in verse 20 uh, of, of chapter 18, it says, Then the Lord said, The outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great, and their sin is so grievous, that I will go down and see if what they have done is as bad as the outcry that has reached me. The language implies that the nations of the world look around Sodom and Gomorrah were appalled by the sin and, and the degradation. It was a city complete surrender to its passions. But there seems to be a, an idea that even the spiritual world is upset. And they're saying, God, are you looking at this? Are you seeing this darkness and this perversion? How long are you going to allow this to go on? And while Abraham was living in a long obedience in the same direction, living within God's story, within the story that God had declared over him, it seems, it seems very evident in today's text, part of what we, we read already, that we're seeing a real contrast between those two and how they saw themselves in relationship with God's story. A story of faith and trust, and then those who try to write their own story. And so these are the things I want to I kind of point out. Firstly, this. Faith travels. Faith travels. Abraham is what we call a sojourner. He goes from waterhole to waterhole, herd to herd, setting up his tents in different places and trusting that God will provide. But looking at the city, he sees evil and he wants nothing to do with that. Rather than the solidity of a town, rather than the protection of a wall, rather than a, a roof over his head, a solid roof over his head, he would rather sojourn than give in and, and, and set up life there. 
So the city for some looked like protection, but on a closer look, it does not offer what it promises. Abraham chooses the stars. He chooses a tent. He chooses water holes. He chooses to continue to trust God with this open life that doesn't have all the answers. To trust God means confidence in uncertainty. We call it a faith journey often because it's a journey. We don't have all the answers. We're discovering new things about God every day. We grow. We get knocked down. But we get up again. We're not, you're not supposed to quote that in church. It's about drunk people, so we don't do that. 2 Corinthians 4, 8-9 gives us a better one. We are hard-pressed on every side, but we're not crushed. We're perplexed, but not in despair. We're persecuted, but not abandoned. We are struck down, but we are not destroyed. In Christianity, in the life of faith, yes, it will be difficult. But we, ha- we live in this, this larger faith that sustains us and holds us even in uncertainty. Even in uncertainty, we can find a home. Abraham is a sojourner. He travels with God, within God's story, within God's promises, without knowing all the answers. And as a shepherd from waterhole to waterhole, Lot wanted protection. He wanted protection of a house. He wanted the protection of, of commerce in the city, the protection of walls, maybe the prestige of living in a city that made him unexpected and shut off from what God might want to do in his life. See, but in Abraham, we see that faith anticipates It anticipates that God is going to do something, that God is on the move. We see both Abraham and Lot are waiting. They're both found at an entrance. Abraham is is being a pilgrim. He's a shepherd. He's He's waiting for God to move on his promise. He's at the entrance of his tent when God and the angels show up. Faith anticipates and is excited by the prospect of God showing up. Abraham's response he was, he was just waiting for God to show up, and he was, his hospitality for God to show up and make, and make space for him was there. He, I don't know whether he was like sitting reading Martha Stewart that morning, like pre-prison Martha Stewart, and he was getting ready with some cakes and how to show hospitality. But it says in verse 2 of 18, Abraham looked up, he saw three men standing nearby, and when he saw them, he hurried from the entrance. He ran towards them of his tent to meet them and bowed low to the ground. And it's not even obvious that Abraham knew who these people were at the beginning of the chapter. Although not knowing who they were, he still treats them with great respect. He shows them amazing hospitality. He brings them three sayas of flour. You know how it is. We all do that. Three sayas. Well, for the two of you here who don't know what a saya is. Sayas of flour. some Some of your footnotes might point this out. Three sayas of flour equals 36 pounds of grain. So he, he, he's, he's got 36 pounds of grain to make some, some bread. He's got a calf that, he, that they slaughter to eat. He's got cheese. He's got milk. So these aren't appies. That he's not like, okay, just have a snack and, get, and move along. He's creating a massive meal. He's hoping they're going to stay for a while. He's in no rush to see them go. Look at the difference with Lot at the city gates. He seems to be fumbling trying to figure out exactly how to deal with these guests. He is not ready. Uh, it's, it's, it's as if he doesn't know how to host people. He looks surprised. He greets his guests, but not in the way that suggests he's happy he's there. It's more like, hey, why don't we stop at McDonald's and then go to my house? And why, actually, why don't we hit the drive-thru and just get to my house? And then first thing in the morning, if you guys could just leave, that would be great. It's the exact opposite of what Abraham does. In the city where he is a leader, he's hanging out at the city gates. That's where leaders hang out. Well-established. His neighbor knows him by name, probably. Lot wants these divine visitors to leave as soon as possible, first thing in the morning. And we'll find out a little later why that is. 
But faith anticipates and rejoices at the prospect of God showing up. Lot, Lot wants God to, to keep moving. Pay no attention to what's going on over here. If you could just have a few treats and move along, that would be great. But we see that Abraham, Abraham's leadership and firm foundation in God's story gives him a confidence. We find out, moving on here, he has a confidence not only to welcome God in, but even to have a debate with God. Now that's a confidence that you can have that kind of faith when you question God on things. Now, we've talked about this before. The Psalms are full of questioning God on a handful of things. But we see that faith wrestles. Faith wrestles. It's okay to battle over some of the things that God does and allows. That's allowed. Faith wrestles with God. It wrestles with truth. To wrestle with God and with questions of faith is proof that you are actually spiritually alive. If you don't, if you don't battle with any sort of uh, spiritual questions, I, I wonder. Upon hearing that God is going to bring judgment to the city of Sodom, Abraham has a conversation with God that shows his heart for the lost, one that often we don't have. In his faith, he has confidence that he can question God's actions. He can struggle with God through this decision that Sodom is beyond saving. And if we begin to think that, that God has come to show wrath and judgment without reflection, that's not what we see in the text. God hears that, that evil is going on, and then he makes his way down to check it out for himself and make a proper judgment. Now, that's, that's anthropomorphous. I'm not going to go into it. Anyway, that is giving, describing God like he is a human being in order to help us understand that God's justice is not blind. It's the idea that the evil of Sodom has reached God's ears and he has stepped onto earth to investigate on his own. And Abraham says to God in verse 23, Abraham approaches him and said, Will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? What if there are 50 righteous people in the city? Will you really sweep away, sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of the 50 righteous people in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. Far be it from you, will not the judge of all the earth do right? I love the way Abraham talks to God. I thought you were a good guy. God, aren't you going to... So Abraham begins this pleading for the city. But you, if, you, if you know the, the verses that follow, if you have it open, he goes from saying, God, if there's 50 righteous people in Sodom, obviously you're not going to destroy it. Then he looks at the city again. Uh, if there were 40 people, obviously you just kind of wonder if he's looking over God's shoulder going, 50 people, 10, how about 10 people? Would that be okay? But it ends up that he can't even find 10 people. In the end, in truth, as we'll see, there's not even four people. Even Lot and his family have to be yanked out of the city, shoved out of the city because they're so attached to their life there. They are faithless in so many ways. They've shut their story off from God. The next thing I would say is that the, the, these stories show us that faith believes. Faith trusts that God's words are true. When God has said something, it is as good as done. Our, uh, we have a men's group that meets from, from town center, and, and we've been talking about prayer recently. And this week we were talking about the, the, that, if you, that when God speaks, it is as good as done, and that God's power are in his words. For you and I to speak is to verbalize a thought. For God to speak is to create reality. 
And we predict, we predict with our words, but God brings things into being. In Isaiah 55, verses 8 to 11, it says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. As the rain and the snow move down from heaven and do not return to it without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish, so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater, so is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. When Sarah hears that she is going to be given a son within... The next year, she laughs. She finds it hard to believe that at 100, she is going to have her first child. Oh, little faith, Sarah, come on. And then in verse 10, it says, One of them, the angels, said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, will have a son. Now, Sarah was listening at the entrance to the tent, which was behind him. Abraham and Sarah were already very old, and Sarah was past the age of childbearing. So Sarah laughed to herself as she thought, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, her Lord being Abraham, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, will I now have this pleasure of having a child? So Sarah's surprised at God's words. With Lot's family, they hear of destruction that is coming to Sodom, and they laugh. They think it's a joke. In Genesis 19, 14, Lot went out and spoke to his son-in-law, who were pledged to be married after he's been told what's coming. So he goes out to his son-in-laws, who were pledged to be married to his daughters. He says, hurry and get out of this place, because the Lord is about to destroy the city. But his son-in-law thought he was joking. One is surprised by God's goodness, the other by his judgment. And that's because, and this is the last point I want to leave you with this morning. Faith, up here it says, faith disintegrates in the city. I have faith diminishes in the city. And with our faith, our wisdom, our spiritual eyesight, throughout Scripture, big nations, big cities are are metaphors for chaos and an enclosed secular world. We see it with Egypt. We see it with Babylon. We see it with Rome. We see it with Sodom. Often, a city or a large, powerful nation, civilization, often represents a place where we diminish our faith. And it tells us that the story is small and it put a, puts a roof over our heads so we don't see the stars. And it encloses us, telling us we're safe when in fact it's trapping us. And yes, it is used metaphorically, but that's because cities do all these things. <laughs> and even suburbs begin to do these things. It's, it's so evident in Lot's life and in the life of his family. The city has diminished their faith. It has diminished and made their story very small. We find Lot at the gate of the ancient city, speaking with other leaders at the city, which implies he's not only a part of the city, surrounded by sin, he's possibly implicit in that city because the rulers hung out at the city gate. He was part of the leaders of this city, so he knew what was going on there. In an attempt to find solid ground, he, he stopped sojourning. He stopped trusting God. He, stepped walk, he stopped walking a journey of faith with God. He couldn't trust the unknown. And so he's firmly planted himself in the ways and the customs of the city. See, now, it used to just be that the city would close us off and come in. 
and close us in, but now we've got internet and social media, and they all push us in and make our story feel very, very small. We see very soon why he is attempting to rush his visitors out of the city. Verse 4 and 5, as we read, Before they had gone to bed, all the men from every part of the city, both young and old, surrounded the house. And they called to Lot, Where are the men who have come to you tonight? Bring them out to us so we can have sex with them. So small side note. We are a church that believes in the orthodox and biblical framework of flourishing in sexual relationships, that humanity was created and continues to be created, male and female, and that it is within this understanding of sexuality that God creates complementary bodies of men and women. That is not the same thing as saying that we are, all we are is sexual beings and that our orientation defines who we are. In fact, it's saying the exact opposite. You and I are far more than our orientation. And so our identity should be caught up in something far greater. Whether we're gay or straight, that is not who you are. You are far more than that. All of that said, so please hear that part. All of that said, the situation in Genesis 19 is not about homosexuality. <laughs> if anything, that is a secondary issue. Now, why do I say that? Well, because besides what you maybe have heard before, the authors of the Bible do not use Sodom as an as a, as a a text to point at homosexuality as not being God's plan for human flourishing. When the authors of Scripture talk about Sodom, this is what they say. In Ezekiel 16, 49 to 50, it says, Now this was the sin of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters were arrogant. They were overfed. They were unconcerned. They did not help the poor and needy. They were haughty and did detestable things before me. Therefore, I did away with them, as you have seen. Jesus himself seems to imply that Sodom and Gomorrah's sin has to do more with their lack of love and hospitality for strangers. In Matthew chapter 10, verses 14 and 15, it says, If anyone will not welcome you or listen to your words, leave that home or town and shake the dust off your feet. Truly, I tell you, it will be more bearable for Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment than for that town. Luke 10, 8 to 12, when you enter a town and you are welcomed, eat what is offered you, heal the sick who are there and tell them the kingdom of God has come near you. But when you enter a town and are not welcomed, go into the street and say, even the dust of your town we wipe from our feet as a warning to you. Yet be sure of this, the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that, on that day for Sodom than in that town. So Jesus is talking about a lack of hospitality and an unwillingness to listen to God. In Jude 7, we get the closest to maybe what we've assumed. In a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. They serve as an example of those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. That's the closest we get. But even that is not specific. And obviously gang rape is a horrible sexual sin regardless of the orientation of the perpetrator. What seems to be the sin of Sodom is an unrestrained, perverse people in every area. And about an unbelievable lack of community and hospitality. It is the opposite of the flourishing that God is going to bring to Abraham who patiently awaits God to act. And when we see Lot try to step out as the hero in this situation, it's just as vile as the young and old men of Sodom. He went outside to meet them, shut the door behind him and said, no, my friends, don't do this wicked thing. 
Where's your head at, Lot? Do this wicked thing. I have two daughters. I don't even want to read it again. Let's go past it. I don't. It's disgusting. It's vile. It's an evil solution to an evil problem. How can a man who has seen the goodness of God in the midst of, of a divine visit lower himself to such vileness? Because our reaction to the presence of God in our lives mirrors the foundation upon which we have constructed our spiritual dwelling. Where have you planted your life? Which narrative do you find yourself in? Which story are you living in? Is it the anything goes story? Is it the my freedom is, is the height of everything story? Then you will live like Lot and his family. His heart resides in the wrong plot line. And we see later that his son-in-laws won't be saved from destruction. His daughters will engage, didn't even read that part, they'll engage in incest. Why? The same same as why the young and the old came together to Lot's house. The young had learned from the old what story they were living in, and they followed their lead. Lot's future son-in-laws, who would have lived with him, ignored God's warning of destruction, ignored his offer of salvation. They laughed at it. They thought he was joking. Sarah laughed at God's promise of life, and they laughed at his promise of judgment. Even Lot and his wife were pretty much dragged from the city. His wife, looking back, turned to a pillar of salt. She was drawn towards the city still and so became like the city. Jesus mentions this in Luke 17.30. He says, Lot's, life, Lot's wife is an example of what happens when we are unwilling to give our lives over to God. When we long to hold on to the world, we become like the things we love. Often when pastors sit together and talk about what they struggle with and what hurts is when the church loses good people. And there's some, some pastors who, who will talk and they'll say, where, where, where have, you, have you seen this person lately? And the phrase that some pastors use is, we lost another one to the city. We, we lost another one to a seven-day work week. We lost another one to money. We lost another one to pornography. We lost another one to addiction. All these things enclosed in the city that say, let us give you life and let us give you freedom. I pointed out earlier that, that Abraham is still a sojourner. He still lives in tents. He still journeys back and forth, water hole to water hole for his herds, unsure of where he's going to sleep that night. But he knows he's sleeping in faith and he's sleeping within God's story. Lot shows that rather than living in mystery, rather than living in the unknown and, and trusting God, he would plant himself in a city known to have no answers. And in the end, when he's taken from Sodom, really pushed out or dragged out of Sodom, he still does not want to go into the wilderness. He does not want to step into the unknown. He doesn't trust God for that. So he says, okay, can you please, give, can you please save that city as well? Zoar, which just means small. Can you just save that town too so I can go live there? See where Abraham was earlier asking God to protect the city for the righteous who were still living there. Lot pleads with God, can you save that city too so I can go and still live in a city? And the, the angels give him that city, 
And eventually he gets scared in the city and ends up living in a damp cave with his family. Just him and his daughters. Ends up in a cave, scared of the city, but having no bigger story to live in. He's in the darkness and he's in the cold. I know many people who have ended up in a spiritual cave. (laughs) Ended up unwilling to live in mystery, unwilling to live in, in faith, unless it will answer all the questions that I need answered right now. And when those don't come, we have what we call today deconstruction. And we must push back on that, say, where else am I going to go? To a cave? No, only Jesus has the words of eternal life. Only he has a story that makes sense, that gives hope and identity. Everything else will tear us apart. Unwillingness to live in God's mystery. With a, I get it. I grew up in a, in a tradition that didn't leave a lot of space for mystery. <laughs> I get that. That's not the promise. <laughs> But the promise is that we, we have a God who, made, who, who, who spoke, um, spoke promises to us that will come to fruition. How do we know? We look back at Christ and his life, death, and resurrection. Unwillingness to live in God's mystery without all the answers. And so we settle in storyless cities with destruction all around us. And we don't want to leave that often to follow Jesus in an unsettled story. But it is to live in readiness for God to do a work in our lives. It's positioning our hearts and our minds for the goodness of God, for the blessings of God. See, Lot stopped seeing the stars. He stopped seeing the the beautiful narrative. And he started living in a closed-off city with shadows to hide in, without anticipation, unwilling to journey with God. And that only has one ending. But the invitation of the gospel, the invitation of Christ is to step out underneath the stars, to step in a much larger story. The beautiful story of the resurrection is that when when Jesus lived, died, and rose from the dead, the resurrection was God's ripping the box off the cosmic story and saying the story is so much bigger than you think it is. And yes, we will have difficulty. Yes, we will have unanswered questions. But you need to know that the Lamb is on the throne and he will see his work through to the end. You and I are consistently in danger. You're going to be in danger of it on your way home today. You're going to be in danger of it when you listen to your podcast or when you turn Netflix on today. You and I are consistently in danger of allowing the city to take over our plot line. To settle for what seems like certainty away from the stars and the shadows of private lives outside of community, online, maybe hidden, but God sees. And the invitation he gives is not judgment, it's salvation. He's willing to save, he's excited to save. Sodom wasn't judged because it was prone to sin. It was judged because while God was writing a story of life, Sodom was writing a story of death leading to its own death. So what keeps us from plot lines of death and destruction? What keeps us from closed off stories and depression and anxiety that that follow along with it, that are connected to it? It's a continued revisiting to God's narrative Martin Luther said, I need to continue to preach the gospel to myself every morning. That's why we live in community. That's why we worship together. Worship was so good this morning. (laughs) 
And I feel like I'm hearing you guys behind me get louder and louder every week. I don't know whether it's a pushback on the storyless world you're experiencing through the week, but there's something going on here that you guys are singing louder and louder and entering more and more into it every week. Please enter that story. It's a life-giving story. It's important we continue to revisit this foundation. Because if it's true that our reaction to the presence of God in our lives mirrors the foundation upon which we've constructed our spiritual dwelling, we need to continue to revisit where our stories are taking place. And this is why, for 2,000 years, the church has had certain things in place in their worship to help anchor ourselves in this beautiful story. The same way that Abraham had to put the tent pegs in all the time. When we take things like communion together, we're putting our tent pegs down and we're camping ourselves in God's story. This is what we do when we take communion. When we take communion, we're pushing back on the city. We're saying this is our liturgy. This is our story. It's a pushback against the darkness, saying we belong to a beautiful story. We will, we will look through a limited story and your low ceiling narrative and we will take in the stars. We'll, we'll look beyond the immediate to the cross. We will look beyond the ceiling to the lamb who sits on the throne. We will eat the bread and the cup of communion as a remembrance of Jesus' death to pay the punishment for hearts that are naturally drawn to the city. We reflect on what it costs for our salvation to be brought in the promise of life and we rejoice because we know that Jesus will return and we will eat this meal together with him. And will we, will we be like Abraham? <laughs> will we see him coming and go running out to embrace him and say, we're so glad you're here. You're here. The, in the New Testament, there's, there's a, the word for that. It's Maranatha. Maybe some of you have heard that. It means Jesus, quickly come. Maranatha, please, Jesus. We are so ready. <laughs> we're getting the bread ready. <laughs> we're ready to feast with you. Or will we be like Lot? And go, oh, um, I forgot you were coming. I'm going to invite uh, Marika to, to come back up and to prepare to lead us in worship. Thanks for listening to this message. If you've been listening to our sermons, but you're not a part of a church community, we would love to have you join us. You can go to cachurch.ca to find out more about getting involved in the life and mission of CA Church.